Nuketown Radioactive number 92 for Monday, February 18th, 2019. It took a year, but I'm back. On this episode of Newtown Radioactive, the Broken Ankle Saga comes to an end as the outdoor geek ventures into the Pennsylvania wilderness for some wintertime camping. Back in the warmer confines of the game room, I've got a ton of new role-playing games I'm looking to play, including Fiasco, Delta Green, and Star Trek. Newtown Radioactive. I'm your host, Ken Newquist, and you'd be forgiven if uh, you'd forgotten that fact, because it's been just about a year, in fact, one day less than a year since the last podcast came out, and what a heck of a year it has been. So, when last we spoke, I was healing a broken ankle. I broke my right ankle on December 30th, 2017, uh, just as winter break was winding down, and... I had surgery in January of 2018, and I pretty much spent the rest of 2018 doing physical therapy, healing up, and trying to get back to where I'd been. So thankfully, now, uh, well, a little bit more than a year after I broke my ankle, I'm done with PT, I'm walking four to five miles a day, and I'm jogging again. So that's good. I can't I can't tell you that it's perfect. It's still sore from time to time. Actually, it's still sore almost every day. It's more sore if I don't do my physical therapy in the morning, but it is definitely getting there. And, you know, the funny thing is, for those of you who have never broken a bone, at least in my case, it wasn't actually about the broken bone that healed the surgery was fine and all that. It was getting the strength back in my foot because you don't move your foot for several months. It's in the cast, then it's in a boot, and you really lose a lot of flexibility. Physical therapy was all about getting that flexibility back. And thankfully, I I mostly did. I think I'm probably at around 95% of where I used to be. You know, there's still tightness there. There's still stiffness. And like I say, there's, it gets worse if I don't do my PTs, which is why I'm, I'm as religious as I can about doing my PT. But I was able to go skiing this past winter, which is really fantastic. Last winter, we were getting ready to go skiing, and I broke my ankle, and boom, I couldn't go. And so to be able to get back out on the slopes this winter was, it was great. It was also a little scary because I hadn't been skiing in, I don't know, like 18 months, almost two years, right? So to get out there again, and then to just have to actually put my ankle through the tests is... It was good. I mean, I was a little nervous getting up there the first time because here's the thing. The the ski boot protects my ankle, right? So it's it's not going to break. But when you're skiing, you have to shift your weight inside the boot. And, you know, when you're turning really hard or what have you, uh, you put a lot of pressure on the different portions of your foot. And that's the part that was going to be sore. So the first time I did it, I, I, was, I was definitely nervous. But it's... Uh, it's all been good, and I'm, I'm glad that I made myself get back out there and not just hang out in the lodge while the kids went skiing. It's been a tremendously busy year, even leaving aside my broken ankle and the resulting PT. We have reached what I like to describe as peak kid, which is 
The kids are involved in the maximum number of activities with the least ability to drive themselves to said activities. So my daughter is in band, which includes wind ensemble and jazz band, and she also plays softball. So she plays for the high school team and she plays for a tournament team, which has all their games local, but you know, it still takes up time. Meanwhile, my son is involved in baseball in the spring and sometimes baseball in the fall, and he's in scouts. And we like to raise seeing-eye puppies. As an aside, Bob, our most recent seeing-eye puppy, uh, went back to the seeing-eye, I guess in late January, and he's currently being evaluated for the program, which is super cool. Uh, it was a lot of hard work to get him ready to go back, so we're taking a little bit of a break. We probably won't get our next puppy until sometime in the late spring, maybe late April, early May. But all this having been said, there is a tremendous amount of stuff going on, and I know that there are other families that have even more stuff than us, but that's what Pete Kid looks like for the Newquists. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. My daughter is about to turn 16, and that means in Pennsylvania that she can get her learner's permit, which means we'll be teaching her to drive, which, holy cow, that means we're going to be teaching her to drive. So, the upside is, is once she gets her driver's license, she'll actually be able to maybe take herself to softball, maybe take... Uh, my son to some of his activities. It uh, it opens up some opportunities. It will undoubtedly make uh, <laughs> for some more stress as she will be out there uh, driving on her own, which is, you know, she's a really good kid. She's very responsible. I'm not worried about that part of it. But, you know, driving is a thing. It's a thing you have to learn how to do. And there are some experiences like driving in the rain, driving in the snow that you really you can really only learn by doing, and I'm sure it was terrifying for my parents, and it'll be a little bit terrifying for us as well. So on top of all of this stuff that's going on, I've been continuing to get into the great outdoors with my son's scout troop, including my coldest ever camp out at the 2019 Klondike, which is a, a winter skills camp out that involves troops from out from throughout our district, and uh, holy, holy was it cold. So the, the first night that we camped out, it was zero degrees, guys zero degrees. That's really freaking cold. So thankfully I had a sleeping bag that was rated to 25 degrees and I had a liner that gave me another about 15 degrees, but holy cow was it cold. Holy cow. We made it through that particular event and uh, after a year of camping, including this Klondike, I find myself now gaining strong opinions about camping <laughs> and about gear and what I really need. So I've had a very faithful tent. Uh, my wife actually got it. It's a I guess it was a backpacking tent um, from when she used to work in uh, for Backpacker Magazine way many, many years ago. And so it's a decent tent, but it's really, you know, hard to set up. The poles don't have quite the same elastic uh, pull that they would have had back in the day. And it was freaking cold. And so I've decided I needed to get a new tent. So I've got this lovely new tent from REI. It's, it weighs about three pounds, which is really cool. The other tent was significantly, uh, significantly heavier and it's very easy to set up. It has one pole. It kind of branches out like, so it has a, a center piece, a center, a center pole, and then it kind of forks out at the end into two Y's that cause this, you know, create the frame for the tent. And it's a very nice tent. Now I got to say, here's the thing that I learned about tents. Uh, there is no such thing as a true winter tent that will keep you warm. Well, 
I shouldn't say that. I'm sure that exists somewhere. But when you're looking at three season tents versus four season tents, the primary difference, as was explained to me, is the number of poles. So the idea with a four season tent is that it can survive being dumped on by snow because it has extra frame to you know, extra poles and extra framing to keep the tent from collapsing. If you're camping out in say Maine and you get caught in two feet of snow or something ridiculous like that. Uh, other tents, that's, that's not what they do. There's no tent and at least no backpacking tent that you would normally get that would cut down on the wind or whatever. So what you really need to keep warm is many layers, <laughs> a good sleeping bag and a good liner. But I love my new tent and it is part of the grand new adventure that is looming large for my son and I, which is backpacking. So I have not been backpacking in, I don't know, maybe 20 years, 23 years, something like that. I went once with my wife in Alaska because she was working on an article about a veteran outdoors woman going camping with her husband who doesn't know anything, right? So that was my one and only backpacking trip. And I got to say, I wasn't particularly good at it. Uh, that having been said, 20 years later, I think I'm actually in better shape and, and more ready for a backpacking trip than I was back then. And I kind of have to be because my son and I and uh, a number of people from our troop are going to be going on a trip to Philmont, which is one of the high adventure camps for scouts. And basically, we're going to spend 11 days backpacking in the New Mexico wilderness. And that is going to be one hell <laughs> of a challenge. So I have my new tent and I have a new backpack. I've, uh, I've taken to walking around the neighborhood with it on, which looks very dorky, but given my ankle, I really need to practice walking with carrying the weight. So, uh, you know, in ye olden days, uh, I might not have needed so much practice. Well, who am I kidding? I was out of shape. I totally needed the practice. My wife ended up carrying half our gear when we were in Alaska. So it doesn't matter. Then, now, whatever. I need the practice. But it's a cool pack. It's a cool tent. And I'm looking forward to this sort of next grand adventure where my son and I will be going backpacking with the troop. We've got a winter backpacking trip coming up in March. And then uh, hopefully we'll get in one or two more during this calendar year. And then we'll start ramping up with, you know, longer duration trips while we get ready for Philmont in 2020. So I'm looking forward to it. Like I said before, it's it's been fun to get out into the great outdoors. You know, like I've said, I think in uh, in episode 90, it's... It's funny that we geeks uh, pride ourselves on not going outside, but then if you look at some of the books that we love the most, like The Lord of the Rings or The Wheel of Time or what have you, those characters spend all their time outside, right? You know, half of half of their journey is uh, is a quest to go somewhere, and I assure you that they're not doing it while, you know, inside of a, a convenient car and never actually having to engage with the outdoors. So it's fun to be outside and, and pushing yourself and learning new things. And among the new things I'm going to be learning is... Uh, how to be a scoutmaster. So I've been an assistant scoutmaster in the troop for, I guess, the last two years that my son has been in it. And now the the current scoutmaster is going to be transitioning back to being an assistant scoutmaster because his son is looking at his run towards Eagle Scout. And so I'm going to take over the leadership of the troop, or at least the, the scoutmaster program side of the troop. And that is going to be its own adventure. So hopefully <laughs> I will be able to keep up all of the blogging and podcasting. That's that's one of the things I was thinking about when I took on this responsibility was I didn't want to lose track of 
the things that are important to me because it is all too easy in life to stop doing things like, oh, say a podcast, and it can be very hard to get them back. So that's one of the reasons why you're listening to this episode right now. This is me kind of starting to defend my time and making sure that I'm continuing to do the things that are really important to me. I may be spending more time in the outdoors, but that does not mean that I have stopped playing video games. I got Civilization VI for Christmas and spent far, far too much time playing it. Specifically, I got Civilization Rise and Fall, which is the base game plus the first expansion. And I gotta say, it was a solid evolution of the Civilization franchise. With the latest expansion, including this Dark Age, Light Age mechanic that really gives you something to work for. So basically, you're trying to achieve either civic or science-based improvements to your civilization, and if you don't progress at a certain rate, you fall into a dark age. If you succeed, you go into a golden age, and if you're just kind of in the middle, then you have a, a normal age. And so with the, the dark age, there's penalties to the loyalty of your cities, but you can get access to additional policies that have an extra oomph to them, but have a dark side. And then with the golden age, you get additional bonuses. And with the normal age, well, you're just kind of like cruising along. So it has this concept of technology and civics, which are basically two different ways of progressing. So technology is your traditional science-based stuff. That's pottery and masonry and, oh, I don't know, steel and oil and what have you, right? The, the technolo technological basis of your civilization. And then civics are things like different forms of government or religion or mysticism or philosophy, those kinds of things, like the the culture aspects of your civilization. And so these two th tracks progress more or less in tandem with one another, although you can choose to focus on, on one or the other. And that's, that's a pretty nice little touch. And then as you, as you move along, you open up different governments, which give you access to policies, which allow you to favor different things like building up a good army, building up good cities, that sort of thing. Um, and also cities themselves have evolved. So they're not just this one little unit that sits on a tile. They actually sprawl over multiple tiles now, and you can have different cities that are based around different concepts. So you might have a city that's focused on culture or a city that's fo focused on armaments and building up a military, and you might have commerce based cities and what have you. And it, it's interesting. It adds a lot of complexity to the game. The challenge I had with Rise and Fall is that the end game got stagnant. So it was very interesting in the like the first third of the game. The middle third of the game, things tended to settle down. You might have a war or three. But then by the end game, it had lost some of the dynamicism that we saw in Civ Five. In Civ Five, you would get to the later eras of the game, and inevitably, everybody would get pissed at you. <laughs> so maybe you're a communist, and everybody hates uh, that you've you've taken down this particular path, or one of the other times of forms of government, right? Or you choose to embrace a religion that they didn't like, or you you protected a city state that they didn't like. But one way or another, at the end of the the day in Civ Five it seemed like I was usually at war, right? And in Civ Six, that hasn't been the case. For the most part, I kind of get to the status quo situation and the game would just kind of lock in. And that, that was fine for pursuing non-military victories, but it also meant that things were a little bit more, well, static, right? Like you could pretty much stay on your given track. So uh, the, the next expansion, Rising Storm, I just got it, so I can't speak too much to how much it breaks up that endgame, but it adds in a new world government. It's definitely been more dynamic in that I've fought more wars in the latter eras. 
we have more uh, societal conflicts between the different civilizations. It also introduces a global warming mechanic, thus the allusion to the, the rising storm. But that is interesting because basically you, you can, you know, have your technology and you burn fossil fuels and you cut down your forest and this gives rise to climate change. And so the nifty thing that in the game, real world is significantly less nifty, but in the game, as this progresses, you actually see coastal cities collapse. Um, you see, well, I shouldn't say coastal cities, the coastal cities kind of linger on, but you'll have uh, low lying shorelands get swallowed up by the oceans. And there's different, like basically three different levels of this. Uh, the first tier of global warming will take the, the lowest of the shorelines and then it kind of ramps up from there. And so early in the game, you'll know where you're placing your cities and you have to kind of think about, well, okay, so, you know, a couple hundred years from now, is this city going to be underwater? Along with this come natural disasters. Uh, these natural disasters show up even before global warming is a is really a consideration. But it's got things like droughts and volcanoes, which are particularly cool. Uh, tornadoes. I haven't I haven't seen a hurricane yet, but I think they exist. And so these are weather effects that come in and they do damage to your city and to the tiles and to your units. And uh, some of them can be kind of catastrophic, but they can also have benefits. So if a volcano erupts, it may take out all of your farmland, but it will leave behind uh, volcanic rich soil that is more productive afterwards so that's interesting i had a few false starts in playing the game because i just kept getting crushed and then i settled into a nice routine took out rome and the roman empire and uh, actually won a i think government victory or a diplomacy victory where basically i was able to get enough favor with the different civilizations to win the game I'm looking forward to playing it some more, but <laughs> like all Civs before, Civ is one of those games that you have to be careful with, or at least I have to be careful with, because if I don't be careful, the next thing I'll know, I'll, I'll just be up until 2 o'clock in the morning every night playing Civ and ignoring all of my other responsibilities or anything else that I might want to do, like uh, reading comic books or you know recording podcasts. So... It is a still an addictive game, and it's one of those things that, you know, I, I block out some time. It's like, okay, well, if I'm going to play Civ this week, then I'm going to lower my expectations for what I might do with some other things. I'm still playing role-playing games, and I picked up a bunch of new ones over the last year, but I haven't had a chance to play them. I'm hoping to change that with uh, Mepicon Spring 2019, which is happening... Oh my gosh, I should probably have looked up the date. There'll be a link in the show notes. It's coming up in, I think, April. Uh, I usually have a good cross-section of games as small regional convention based in Scranton. But some of the games that I picked up were The Fall of Delta Green, which is Ken Height's take on the collapse of Delta Green in the 1960s. Delta Greens is a blacker-than-black government agency, or is it, tasked with fighting the influence of the Cthulhu mythos and uh, containing all of the conspiracies that are spawned by the mythos. This is a self-contained game that uses Robin Law's gumshoe system rather than the traditional D100 basic system used by Delta Green's progenitor, uh, Call of Cthulhu, and the, the D100 mechanic that's also used by the actual Delta Green role-playing game, which is also out there, which I also want to play. So that looks cool. We've been talking in my group about wanting to play gumshoe. There's a number of us who are interested in it, but we never got around to it. This might provide an excellent opportunity for doing that. I picked up Fiasco, which is a game about bad people coming up with worse plans, which then fall apart. You can imagine movies like uh, Heat or Fargo or The Usual Suspects, that kind of thing. It's a game masterless collaborative game that I think my group would really enjoy. It's meant for one shots. It's not really meant for a campaign. I've played it 
once or twice. I played a Dresden Files inspired version of Fiasco at Mepicon a couple of years ago, and I liked it. it was, it's a cool mechanic. I think everybody's got to be into it. You got to have enough knowledge of the game to be able to understand how it all comes together. But it's it's pretty cool, and I think it would help with my friends with. Just giving us a challenge. Like, we play a lot of D&D, and I think when we branch out into these other games, sometimes it helps the core D&D experience. I also picked up Star Trek, which is <laughs> a really big, hefty book, and it looks to be a very time-consuming read, but I can't wait to sit down and really just kind of dig into it. And this is one that I'm really hoping that I can play at Mepicon, because the mechanics look cool. And there's so many books that are out for it that I could I could see myself completely throwing myself into this game. But obviously, I'm not going to go out buying books if the system itself isn't great. So anyway, Star Trek, new role-playing game. Can't wait to try that one out. And finally, I have Tales from the Loop, which is about kids on bikes investigating weird happenings in rural coastal Sweden, which is really cool. My family is Swedish. And so when I saw this book came out, I'm like, okay, I, I think I'm going to need to pick this up. Because, I mean, it may be the only role-playing game that I will ever own that takes place in Sweden. As for the role-playing games I am playing right now, well, that's that's actually Dungeons & Dragons yet again. I just finished up my Obsidian Frontier campaign, which you can read about up on the website. Um, that campaign started off as a playtest for Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition, and it went for about four years. So, uh, hell of a playtest. Successful. We, we like 5e. Uh, that has been replaced by a campaign set in Blackmoor, which is one of the original campaign settings for Dungeons & Dragons. It was created by Dave Artisan back in the day. And so in the world of Greyhawk, there is the Arch Barony of Blackmoor, which kind of includes aspects of that campaign. It was Gary Gygax's uh, homage to his friend. So that was cool. And we're doing an interesting thing where we're starting off with zero level characters that have no class. They have a race and they have a background, but they haven't actually figured out what they're going to be yet. So we started off, we were all slaves captured by the forces of Ayus, which is this demigod who conquered the northern reaches of <laughs> the world of Greyhawk. And so we escaped and now we're finding our way into Blackmoor. And then the idea is within you know a session or three, we will have figured out what our class is and then we'll get into actual adventuring in Blackmoor. Blackmoor is, is interesting because Arneson didn't go with your standard fantasy. There are aspects of that to be sure, but he also included like robots and sort of mutants there's a lot of half men in there like so your frogman and your yakman and that sort of thing so it's very it's got a very like late 70s sci-fi fantasy kind of vibe but not in the star wars sort of way right more like in your post-apocalyptic tales of the dying earth sort of way so that should be fun we're planning on running that for maybe 12 to 16 sessions the idea is to run a shorter campaign rather than another four-year campaign and then hopefully we'll be able to transition into playing maybe a six to eight episode um, campaign of something like the fall of delta green or star trek or tales from the loop i love running long style long style campaigns they're a lot of fun but at this point i'm kind of itching to get into playing some other things now the last campaign i have is yet another dungeons and dragons campaign it's uh based on uh Waterdeep dragon heist and it is for my lunchtime game so my lunchtime game is back after a long hiatus i think it had been on hiatus for uh, probably almost a year 
But uh, we have a good group of people at work who are interested in playing, and we've gotten back into our routine. So it's my first campaign that I've ever played in the Forgotten Realm, so I've had to do a lot of research there. And so far, it's been it's been going pretty good. We are almost done with the first chapter. We play once a week for an hour over lunch, so it is slow going, but we've had a lot of fun. And in uh, a personal first for me as a dungeon master, I actually got to to kill a PC and have his brain be devoured by an intellect devourer. So, you know, you learn a new thing every year. That'll do it for this episode of Nuketown Radioactive. We are always looking for feedback. You can send it to nuketown at gmail.com. You can also uh, find us on Twitter and Facebook. There are links in the show notes. And uh, you can stop by the website, which is now powered by WordPress, and leave us a comment.